Over one quarter of the global population lives in regions that have already experienced more than one and a half degrees Celsius of warming. If we continue at present rates of greenhouse gas emissions, we will exceed two degrees of warming by 2036. You're listening to Cooler Earth, a podcast of climate exchange. Your weekly dive into energy transitions, sustainability, environmental politics, and all things climate change. Each week, we feature special guests and in-depth discussions by your hosts, Amanda Griffiths, Ryan Maya, and Maria Virginia Lano. So this week, since it's our first episode of the podcast, we thought we would tell you a little bit more about ourselves so you can see kind of where we're coming at when we talk about different aspects of climate change on the podcast. Yeah, so I'm Maria Virginia. I was born in a city called Cali in Colombia, which is the most beautiful country in the world, but had been plagued by a civil war that spanned most of last century. And so growing up around those conditions made me very aware of issues of human rights and social justice. I always actually wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to help people and save lives. And so I decided to volunteer for Doctors Without Borders in their missions to Colombia. They need a translator. So all that I was doing was basically shadowing doctors and walking around with them through consults and surgeries and basically helping them get around in Spanish. This was supposed to help me learn a lot more about doctoring, like the science behind it. And everyone who was volunteering there was getting super excited about going into surgery and all of the things we were being exposed to. Yet I wasn't. I was really bummed and sad at the end of each day. And it was a really difficult experience for me. So at the end of it, two things became very clear. The first one was that I was way too emotional and got too attached to patients to ever make a good doctor. The second was that most of the things that we were treating and the people coming into the hospital were actually coming in not because of illnesses that we couldn't cure or prevent, but because of man-made causes stemming from violence, the war, people being shot, women being abused at home children having stepped on landmines from the Civil War. And so it became very apparent that we had a governance problem uh, that had to be changed and solved and that it was senseless that so many people were suffering and losing lives from things that we could control. Because of this, I decided to study political science. I came to the United States. I did my undergrad in political science with the idea that I would go back be in politics and help change some of these problems that I saw. I actually ended up falling in love with international security and international human rights and everything that humanity had built after the horrors of World War II, including the birth of the United Nations, the International Committee for the Red Cross, and all of these organizations whose mission it is to safeguard those rights. And so that work took me to work in and around the United Nations, both in New York and in Geneva. And I, I'm i still very hopeful and absolutely in love with all of the things that we can do and achieve when we come together and work together collectively. However, throughout those experiences, even as I was focusing my attention into human rights and civil rights, I kept seeing these independent variable coming up every year time. And those were how the stressors of climate change and global warming impacted 
all of these other problems that as a society we already have. For example, I was doing investigative journalism in Bosnia-Herzegovina, looking into the civil war in Syria. And we learned that one of the reasons that the conflict sparked and started in 2011 was due to a drought that happened because of climate change. It was that severe because of climate change. And when I was in New York City, working towards getting an arms embargo on some arms control in the conflict in South Sudan, we were interviewing people on the ground, specifically women, whose stories painted a picture in which women had to walk further distances to get water because of droughts that are plaguing the continent of Africa. And it was in these travels that women were being assaulted or becoming victims of violence. In a similar way, when I was in India studying women's rights and how we could protect and safeguard gender-based human rights, I was actually present for the hottest summer Rajasthan has ever recorded. And dozens of people were dying from literal heat. It became very apparent that if we didn't do something collectively to tackle the issues and mitigate the effects of climate change, there weren't going to be very many human rights left to protect. That's why I've decided to focus my efforts and do all that I can with what I have to help solve this crisis. So I'm Ryan Maya, and something my parents could tell you about me is that I have a hard time focusing on just one subject, whether it's model trains, airplanes, and being a pilot, chemistry, photography, I really struggled in my early upbringing to focus on just one passion. In high school, the classes that most interested me were things like social science and history, the things that looked at all sides of the story, all the causes behind why things were the way they were. But my parents were scientists, and I was good at science, so I thought, duh, I should be a scientist too. I started college as a chemistry major, and I enjoyed it. The classes were fun, but they weren't fulfilling. I was watching and reading the news between and after class, and I wasn't really doing anything to help solve the justice issues that I saw in the news. My interests were in immigration, conflict resolution, and international law. And uh, at the intersection of the issues that I was passionate about outside of class was climate change. Studying climate change forces uh, has let me learn about economic development, social justice, and law, the effects of political systems on combating climate change, and the science of climate change. Uh, Something else my parents would tell you about me is that I'm all about justice. I was the shy kid at school, so I really levied the power of logic and rhetoric to protect myself and my friends from bullies and problems that we were facing. So my first summer internship during college was at Community Legal Services in East Palo Alto. There I worked for their uh, immigration wing. They're a legal services firm that provides assistance to low-income individuals. Uh, We helped them get asylum. We helped them in deportation proceedings, which were the saddest of all. Hearing the stories of these people who had come to America, not because they wanted to, but to flee terrible injustices, I really learned the importance of the human element in justice narratives, and not only justice, but the law. I was helping those who couldn't help themselves, and that instilled within me a duty to help because I realized that I could. The justice implications of climate change seem so obvious to me. We have these huge countries making enormous emissions, uh, yet these small countries and communities around the world are feeling the worst impacts. And to me, uh, that's, that's just not okay. I feel compelled and impassioned to play my role in the fight against climate change, which has led me to do some on-the-ground research in Singapore about uh, how this 
50-year-old tiny country has been able to become a very sustainable country, uh, started as a developing country with litter in the streets, polluted water supplies, pollution in the rivers, dependent on their neighbors for water. Uh, but now, through the, for- the power of public policy and smart governance, they've been able to become a city and a garden. They have uh, parks within five-minute walks of everyone. I've been to Costa Rica, where I've uh, met with coffee farmers and learned about the impacts of climate change on their businesses. Now, uh, a lot of the coffee plantations in Costa Rica are 100% emissions neutral, uh, but they're still feeling the impacts of warmer weather, warmer climate, and they can have their entire crop wiped out in a week by climate conditions, crops that they've worked on for months and months and that they rely on for their livings. Uh, so that's a social justice issue that has really resonated with me. I've done some research on New Zealand's forthcoming special visa for their refugees. Uh, they have a lot of Pacific Islanders there who have come to New Zealand seeking better lives. But in current immigration law, there's really no allowance for environmentally displaced people, climate refugees, to seek a new life in other places. But their current prime minister is really working on taking climate change by the reins and perhaps providing a special visa to people affected by climate change on the Pacific Islands. I've also taken it upon myself to pass the torch in both my educational knowledge regarding climate change and my passions for tackling climate change. So I'm uh, the president and co-founder of EcoScholars, an organization built around providing interdisciplinary climate change education to elementary, middle school, and high school students. We're developing the world's uh, first ever interdisciplinary climate curriculum for these age groups. And we have a huge focus on how economic, social issues, scientific issues, and political causes are really coming together, overlapping, and at the nexus of climate change. And we're also showing how students can be involved, whether that be just by changing their recycling habits, calling up their representatives, or even pursuing a career in clean energy. So uh, we launched that program uh, recently, and we're really hoping it'll expand well. And I hope you enjoy this podcast. I'm Amanda Griffiths. I grew up in Western Massachusetts and had a big backyard that opened up into a forest. So I spent a lot of my time growing up, and especially the summers, wandering around in the wilderness and exploring what different plants looked like and climbing trees and looking at the veins and leaves and absolutely loved my time outdoors and and had a really big respect for nature. When I went off to my undergraduate, I went to upstate New York, which is even more in the wilderness and more rural area than even where I was in Western Mass, and ended up continuing to study plants. As my research developed, I was able to examine more how plants work, how they grow, and became really interested in the physiology of plants and botany and looking at how they're able to survive and thrive in an environment without being able to move like like humans or other animals can in an ecosystem. And I found it fascinating, the things that they can do to stop being eaten by predators. They have this whole network going where they can communicate and defend themselves, and that's how they survive and flourish. And I thought that was absolutely fascinating and, and wanted to dive into that more. But as I continued my research... I found more and more that when we're setting up studies, 
we were trying to create pristine study areas where humans weren't a part of the equation. And we wanted to see how plants grew and, and how they reacted without humans in the picture. And to me, that seemed completely <laughs> nonsensical because humans are such an intrinsic part of so many ecosystems and communities across the globe. And even places where we haven't physically touched, we've impacted just by being a part of the earth and, and impacting the atmosphere. And so I wanted to explore more imperfect ecosystems or ecosystems that have been really heavily touched by humans, exploring that more and seeing how we interact with plants and how they interact with us and how they grow under different conditions. And through my research in that area, I started focusing on climate change because that's one of the greatest impacts humans can have on the terrestrial environment and the globe as a whole. I found that really incredible to study. Ended up going beyond the Adirondacks and researching in Costa Rica. <laughs> Spent some time there as well. I'm looking at plants that aren't rooted in the soil because those up in the canopy are going to be more quickly impacted by atmospheric changes. And I loved field research. I loved being outside and in the forest and, and really enjoyed that aspect. But after you go outside in the forest, <laughs> you have a bunch of samples that you then have to analyze in a lab. And I found myself not enjoying my time in the lab setting and the really nitty gritty of the scientific process and methodology in the lab and knew that that was not where I wanted to be spending my time. And so when I finished up my research and was looking at wanting to dive into the workforce, I ended up finding a job at the Massachusetts State House, working for the House Committee on Climate Change there. That was the first time that I really heavily looked at the more human side of, of ecosystem ecology and of climate change and was my first kind of look at politics and and how we can collect as much data as we want with science. But at the end of the day, we are coming up with a study with recommendations or conclusions. But then as humans, we have to then interpret what that study means and what implications that has on what we can do as a government or as a community. And then kind of beyond that, even if you have a bill that you believe has a scientific backing there are a lot of different opinions on the matter. And how do you work through what you believe is the best decision and reconcile that with what somebody else believes to be the right action to take? There's just so many different ethical layers to that. And you can have so many different interpretations of the same scientific study. And last session in Massachusetts, we had a lot of discussion on renewable energy. And that was a really hot topic, whether it was solar, which was a huge discussion, or wind, or, or hydropower, transmission lines. We would be getting all of these different opinions that are all, were all quote-unquote scientific in the way that they were determined and all of these different statistics. And it was this huge wake-up call to how science can differ and, and how different interpretations can stem from the same data and you can create a narrative just because something is scientifically backed up. And that was absolutely jarring to think about coming from plant sciences and, and really having like such a rigid view of what the scientific method was. And then inserting, inserting the human equation into it was really a wake-up call for me. And so now kind of looking at 
exploring climate policy from different angles now. So outside of the state house, working with climate exchange, continuing to create educational content and just really explore different ways that we can implement climate policies or even regulations that can move us towards climate mitigation and especially adaptation. Since Massachusetts with all of its coastlines and even inshore, all of the issues that we're facing as a result of climate change already and taking more leadership in, in those roles. So coming to the podcast, looking to explore more, <laughs> more climate issues um, and, and talk to more experts because it's such a wide reaching topic and just diving into more interesting happenings with everyone here. Right. And I think it's it's really important. And part of the reason we decided to create this podcast and forum is to go beyond the traditional debate and discussions around climate change and even beyond the, the doom and gloom science that paints a mm-hmm. terrible picture that I mean, might be right. <laughs> but at the same time, there are some amazing things happening out there. And there's great organizations and people and humans who've dedicated their lives to solving this crisis in so many innovative and, and great ways that need to also be a part of the conversation, I think. Right. And I, I think we're definitely at a really critical point where we see our emission levels at this point. And, and a lot of people are saying we're at a point of no return. I can't imagine, even if that is the absolute truth, are we going to just stop trying to come up with solutions? Are we just going to like throw our hands in the air and say, well, we tried, (laughs) we're done, that's it. And so that's just not the right way forward. So let's look at what we are doing, what we can do, and how can we move forward? Because even nobody's going to tell me that it is absolutely impossible for us to turn this around. Right. My thought process is, yeah, doom and gloom. <laughs> it's right around the corner. It's coming for us. And that, in a weird way, that kind of makes me, it's terrible. It makes me excited, though, because finally people will start to realize the impacts of climate change because it'll be in their backyards. Because it's real now. It'll yeah. be making their feet wet on their way to work if they live in Boston <laughs> or another yeah. coastal city. Uh, people will be forced to open up their eyes. But we're hoping to, through this podcast, kind of bring a more realistic take on what we can do and what we are doing to combat climate change. Yeah. So Ryan and Maria, what is a current climate change topic that you're following and that you're really excited about? I'm really interested in the law around climate refugees. Uh, So now we have this issue of people who are being forced to move across borders, not because of political terror or war, but because their homes are being flooded or because their crops are being flooded or because there's no rain at all and they can't grow anything. So we're at this critical juncture where countries that are receiving these people either have to choose to turn a blind eye, shut the door, or create new laws that let these people in and help them create better lifestyles or even better uh, policies that help these people adapt in their own backyards and be able to stay put despite uh, rising tides. So that's something I'm really interested in. Uh, It interests me especially because there's not really much that's been done. It's also kind of depressing because not really much has been done. But let's hope that New Zealand kind of paves the way in creating this special visa for climate refugees, and hopefully that'll turn into something great. But we'll see. And 
For me, I think I'm really excited now to see all the ways in which businesses are included in the conversation now, because I think we've moved past the whole, oh, you have to act uh, to mitigate climate change because it's the right thing to do. But now it's also good for business. And we have the technologies that are kind of catching up. People are grabbing onto the opportunity, even if they don't care about climate change, right? Because it's... Because they care about money. Right. They care about money. And we, like everyone does. And... (laughs) That is very exciting to me to see how the private sector in a way is going to lead the way or force governments to also go in the right direction. And I think that's a lot of what we'll talk about here and discuss all of the technologies. And I'm, I love emerging technologies, specifically all the developments in artificial intelligence, which are also kind of really scary, but at the same time <laughs> offer huge opportunities uh, for the future that we had never coped with before. And I think that's awesome. Yeah. Climate change drones. You never know. Yep. Yeah. So much technology. Yeah. I get really jazzed about. Jazzed. (laughs) Jazzed. Jazzed about the smart grids. She starts Um, singing and dancing. (laughs) Just, uh, I just think that we're looking at, especially with an influx of renewable energy into our electric grid and looking at ways that because they're less reliable sources of energy um, and we can't be as sure of what their capacity will yield at different times of the day or different weeks of the year, we're going to have to have a more reactive grid. And I think consumers are trying to demand to have more control over how they use their energy when they're using it. So you're looking at smart thermostats and smart meters and, and ways or you know plugs that tell you how much electricity you're using with certain appliances and you can turn them on and off remotely and you have all this data at your fingertips now and it's so exciting what possibly that can lead to in the future. Technology is really fascinating to look at because it's kind of this bright note in climate change. Right. Um, And there are so many aspects that you can look at with climate change uh, and so many that we have to look at and think about that this is one little piece that is really exciting because it brings a lot of hope with it, with how it can shape the way that we we live. Great. So next week, what are we doing? Um, So next week, we're going to be discussing uh, the new buzzword, the new policy kind of hot topic to mitigate climate change, which is carbon pricing. And so we'll talk about what it is, why we think it's awesome and great, and the best market-based solution out there for policymakers to to tackle greenhouse gas emissions. The best, yeah. And Singapore just created a carbon tax. Singapore, our favorite country. Right, they did. They did, yeah. So we'll have Climate Exchange's Executive Director, Mike Green, on the podcast next week to talk about it because he has been in the realm of carbon pricing policy for years now. So he's got a lot of insights on exactly what it is, what's happening in different states in the U.S. and beyond, and he'll be great to talk to you about that. So we will see you next week. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on Instagram at Cooler Earth. 